Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out about an initiative to ensure that all of the more than 13,000 Indigenous veterans who served in the World Wars and the Korea conflict have proper grave markers. And nearly 30 years after Canada created our own Victoria Cross, the country's highest military honour, it has still not been awarded to a single soldier. A group of Canadian soldiers who are among the 40,000 who served in Afghanistan believe that should change, and we meet one of them. Global News Senior Correspondent Jeff Semple joins us to talk about a series of reports he's done following a trip to the Canadian Arctic. Financier, entrepreneur, Dragon's Den star and author Air... Financier, entrepreneur, Dragon's Den star and author Arlene Dickinson joins us to chat about her new venture. But first, Canada's top doctors encouraging people to wear masks as hospitals struggle with a surge of patients caused by a perfect storm of viruses including COVID and influenza. An infectious disease expert joins us to weigh in. First up tonight, some alarm bells from Canada's top doc today saying that when it comes to seasonal respiratory illnesses, we are already seeing the difference this fall and winter season compared to the last two years when all those uh, restrictions were in place, all those protections were in place. Teresa Tam says COVID-19, influenza and RSV have created a dynamic that is putting a lot of pressure on our hospitals. So not only have the COVID-19 not done with us, even though we're fatigued, uh, we're seeing the influenza really rising quite steeply right now. There's going to, it's going to be different in different parts of the country, but in general, that's just beginning to climb. And then RSV that began a, a little while ago is still at a very high level. Dr. Teresa Tam there, she says the resumption of school, work, indoor gatherings, all of it has resulted in more viral circulation, not surprisingly. Now, she's also emphasized the importance of personal protective measures. That includes indoor masking, COVID-19 and flu vaccinations and so forth. It comes on the heels of Ontario Premier Doug Ford yesterday encouraging Ontario residents to wear a mask whenever they are in a situation that is less safe. He stopped short, of course, of committing to any sort of renewal of mask mandates in that province. Uh, So to mask or not to mask, and will mask mandates return? It is a question that public health officials across the country are facing once again, politicians too. And joining me now with more on that is Dr. Gerald Evans, an infectious disease specialist with the Kingston Health Sciences Centre and Queen's University. Thanks for your time tonight, doctor. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. We're seeing, uh, I mean, it feels like it's it's been a bit of a, a, a slow storm rolling in, but we're really seeing the impacts of, of a lot of different things colliding all at once here. What's been going on? Well, yeah, that's exactly really what we've seen. So um, it's kind of an interesting mix this fall. I think it's kind of hitting what a lot of us uh, were a little bit worried about. So um, COVID has kind of held itself during the seventh wave. And and in some places like where I am here in Ontario, the numbers are slowly starting to drop. However, at the same time, in the last really month and a half, we've seen the rise of uh, two viruses in particular, RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, uh, another virus called human metanumovirus, and then uh, recently parainfluenza virus. And right now on our doorstep and likely to jump in the next couple of weeks, of course, is influenza, which is going to arrive early this year and give us that seasonal influenza wave um, uh, really in the end of the month of November into December, which is probably about a month or two early. So uh, if you, I hate to use some of these terms, but it's kind of like the perfect storm at the moment uh, in terms of the persistence of COVID and the rise of these other viruses. 
I guess we had a bit of a preview of this from what happened um, in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia specifically, over their winter, because I gather a lot of what we're seeing now was seen there. Absolutely. And I think a lot of us who were asked to comment uh, about what we should expect for this influenza season looked at what happened in the Southern Hemisphere and in particular Australia and said, well, look, it's going to hit early this year. Uh, you know, we've had two years in a row now with extraordinarily low levels of influenza because we were, you know, employing measures that helped to reduce the transmission of COVID and they were very effective at reducing the transmission of influenza. But we expected and are now seeing that early rise. And the only thing I can say is that if you, if you can look at the whole picture of winter in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, there was an early huge rise in cases of influenza seasonally and then it dropped off and it stayed dropped off so they didn't see a second wave and that was really due i think to uh, a lot of push for people to get their flu shot uh, and that probably helped to prevent what is oftentimes a second later in the winter early spring wave of influenza that can hit when you get an early season yeah we'll talk about some ways to, to protect oneself as well but we're seeing the strain right now in an already strained healthcare system but specifically with children's hospitals yeah, for sure. And that's really related to, um, in particular, two other viruses, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, uh, and parainfluenza viruses. Both tend to um, cause a more predominant problem with children, uh, and in particular, very young children where they cause uh, either a pneumonia. With RSV, it's called bronchiolitis. It's a kind of a weird name, but it's really a form of pneumonia. And in, in parainfluenza viruses, it's croup which a lot of um, people listening who are parents will have recognized uh, their children get oftentimes between the age of one and two. So those have had a particular impact on children, and that's caused this rise in, in um, respiratory virus infections amongst that group, not the least of which, too, of course, is we've gone right back to schooling. School started in September across Canada, and after the rhinovirus phase, which always happens in the fall when kids go back to school, that's the one that causes the common cold. It's pretty pretty non-eventful. Now we've seen the rise of these more serious viruses. And, and again, uh, impacting a healthcare system that really has no room to give. Exactly. And uh, not the least of which is, of course, we've we've also tend to kind of compartmentalize some of our healthcare and and all large cities now and, and even smaller cities have, you know, children's hospitals where kids are expected to go for their medical care, including emergency visits and then uh, adult hospitals. So that's really putting a strain because uh, although uh, most general hospitals uh, like where I work here in Kingston uh, are used to seeing children in the emergency department, we're not used to seeing them in such large numbers at the same time that we continue to see large numbers of adults coming in with covid uh, what will be influenza and, of course, people who have had a lot of delay and other kinds of care uh, because of the pandemic. If we go back to the early days of the pandemic and, and some of these health protections that were put in place, I mean, the point was always to protect the healthcare system, as well as to save lives, of course, but to protect the healthcare system at large. Uh, what can people do now to try to help out? There are actually kind of a, a few sort of common sense things that we can do. And one of them is to practice what we call, you know, sort of normal respiratory hygiene. Uh, washing your hands is important. A number of these viruses have what we call fomite transmission. That is, they can be transmitted onto hands. And then when you touch your face, your eyes or your nose, you can actually inoculate the virus into those areas. So washing your hands is really important. We need to be aware that if you're sick with something, you shouldn't go to school and you shouldn't, shouldn't go to work because there's a potential to 
transmit that uh, to others. You need to be careful if you're gathering socially. Um, you know, if people are bringing uh, family and friends together or, you know, work colleagues or something, as we oftentimes see during the holiday season, they need to say and remind people, look, if you're not feeling well, you shouldn't come to this gathering because you might risk transmitting it to other people. And then there's other things we do. We talk about uh, sneezing into your elbow instead of onto your hands to avoid, uh, re- you know, producing that fomite transmission issue. Those are, I think, all reasonable things to do. And of course, during the pandemic, we learned that wearing a mask, which is not a particularly difficult thing to do, uh, can be very, very effective at reducing the transmission of a number of these viruses. Like I said, the the absence of flu for the last two years can almost solely be attributed to you know masking. In addition, of course, to reductions in travel, which are now gone, everybody's traveling, and so moving the viruses around. Dr. Evans, we were talking before we uh, we took a quick break about masking. Where does this go? I mean, one of the things that that strikes me is that, you know, not, not to use this term too loosely, but people have become a little bit immune to public health messaging, unlike perhaps before the pandemic. Um, do you have any concern that that may get in the way here of people doing basic stuff to prevent both to help themselves and to help their communities? Most definitely. Uh, I mean, there has been a real erosion. I think there's a an emerging sort of distrust of expert agencies, whether it be public health, whether it be the government, whether it be, you know, physicians like myself and others who make recommendations. People are hearing about arguments that suggest that those things aren't useful, they don't work, and they're infringing on on your freedom to do what you want. And and I think that has really been a challenge. Um, one of the most interesting groups I, uh, I sat on uh, during Muscle pandemic was the behavioral sciences working group of the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table, which I also sat on. And uh, those behavioral scientists really uh, have a, a real take on how uh, the public perceives these kinds of messages. And that can really relate to a whole bunch of factors, which includes things like your own personal risk perception, uh, whether or not you have confidence in the group that are making those recommendations, et cetera. And all of those kind of come into play because I will say that much like it was in the Spanish flu a hundred years ago, it is public kind of indifference to what's happened with the pandemic that has led to a lot of the, the challenges that we faced. And as you're carefully pointing out right now, when we would really like to say to people, and we are, like, consider putting a mask on again for a while. You know, uh, influenza season typically lasts about four to six weeks and then it disappears. And this is a perfect time to think about, um, you know, doing your part to try and keep the reduction uh, in viral transmission low so we don't see as many cases coming into the into a healthcare system, which is really uh, in crisis at the moment, and as well as doing things that protect you, protect others around you, et cetera. So that's really been the challenge, I would say, because I don't think there's any one of my colleagues... Um, uh, I'm, I'm an infectious disease specialist. I, I take care of people who are infected. Uh, you know, we've been really wanting to get a message across that there are some things that you can do. Masking is one of them. I know for sure there's no appetite at the moment, seemingly for mandates, but uh, this is the kind of thing I think that can really uh, help. And it's not that difficult a thing to do in in many ways. In what environments would you most would you recommend that? Because I think that sometimes can be uh, can be part of it. But right now, in terms of just protecting oneself, protecting one's community, trying to help the healthcare system, where where should we mask? 
Well, uh, you really have to think about circumstances where uh, crowding is occurring uh, indoors, where there is uh, less uh, circulation of air, short range aerosols and uh, and droplets and that can contribute to transmission. And those are particularly high risk situations. The other one is actually in schools. And I know schools tends to be very controversial mm-hmm. um, and certainly younger children mm-hmm. actually surprisingly were able to wear masks and were not particularly against them. But there are many who uh, feel that masking a child in school is somehow uh, would impede some of their education. But that kind of transmission is important. And I'd underscore it because we know influenza in particular, influenza virus, when it enters a community, it is amplified in school environments. So uh, encouraging uh, masking at school, I think, is a is a very reasonable thing to do, along with a lot of the other measures that I uh, that I mentioned previously. Will it come to a point, do you think, uh, seeing what you're seeing, where, where it will have to be mandated if people don't uh, if people don't do it voluntarily? It'll depend on, on what the uptake is. I mean, right now, what we know is a pretty well 50% of the public don't perceive masking to be particularly onerous. They may not be masking uh, up until recently because, uh, you know, they didn't think they had to. So it's a bit of a, a split in terms of, of where that that's going to happen. A mandate will help. Uh, there will be uh, circumstances that would really take a number, you know, the 50% of people who are generally against any kind of masking, that they would take it up. Uh, and we know that during the pandemic, mandates worked. Uh, when you mandated people to wear a mask in certain settings, um, it did help to reduce uh, transmission of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, um, and and definitely helped to reduce things. And you know, the reduction uh, in a large meta-analysis that was published in the in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, showed that masking was you know um, at least a fifty percent reduction in transmission occurred with that. So, the challenge with mandates, Ben, I would say, is that you know governments are very adverse to this now. Now, they're always worried about who's going to vote for them and and uh, what that next election is going to look like. And that's where you tend to see the pushback because they don't want to invoke the pushback that they get from certain sectors. Right. And I obviously shots uh, getting your getting your your uh, immunization up to date would be an important one now, I, I assume, as well. Well, yeah, for flu, for sure. I mean, one of the early uh, bits of data that we have is the circulating strain of influenza, the H3N2 virus, which is dominating right now uh, in this early part of the influenza season, um, seems to be very well matched to the vaccine strain that we have. So, you know, in some years we've we've um, complained that the vaccine was less effective because it didn't match the, the circulating virus. Well, this year it does. And like I said, down in Australia, they attributed the drop in their seasonal flu and and the, and the lack of a second wave of flu uh, to kind of come in because there was such a great uptake of flu shots um, in the population. Well, Dr. Evans, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. All right. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll complete our Remembrance Day stories for tonight with, um, with an uplifting one. Um, more than 10,000 First Nation Inuit and Métis soldiers Some 12,000 really fought in the world wars and the Korean conflict. And for decades, as is well documented uh, now, uh, their efforts and sacrifices were mostly ignored. That has started to change at last. There are a number of initiatives out there dedicated to honoring the role that those many thousand played. Um, In many cases, they volunteered, right? They had to volunteer. One of them is called the Indigenous Veterans Initiative, and it was introduced by the last Post Fund in 2019. Now, the fund itself has been around for more than a century for all veterans, really to make sure that all veterans have proper grave markers. 
But now the program has dedicated itself to providing grave markers to indigenous veterans, also adding traditional names to existing ones. Uh, And since 2019, they found hundreds of unmarked graves and provided more than 165 headstones. Lately, most recently, eight Mohawk veterans from the Bay of Quinte who served in the First and Second World War have now been given proper military headstones. Chief of the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte, Donald Maracle, says Indigenous veterans were historically not afforded the same benefits as other veterans upon their return from war. What's important for Canadians to remember is that uh, Native people could not be conscripted into the military because they didn't have the right to vote during the First World War and the Second World War. And so they were not seen to be British subjects that could be conscripted into the army. That was uh, the chief of the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte, Donald Maracle. Now, despite this, Maracle says Indigenous peoples volunteered for service in numbers disproportionate to their population who came, came to those wars. So the idea that there would be a great number out there whose graves don't reflect the sacrifice or the uh, sacrifice that they made to serve this country is an issue. Um, So the Last Post Foundation has gone about, Last Post Fund has gone about with a list of names that they were given by a researcher, has now set about working with Indigenous communities all over the country, from the far north to out west out here in BC to uh, the Maritimes and beyond, that they've been looking to try to right that wrong. And it is a really interesting initiative. It's also a tough one because a lot of research needs to be done. So they've been working with local researchers as well, trying to learn more about the histories, trying to make sure that they find out where these graves are and how they can be uh, properly reflected. In other words, to provide them with a proper grave marker. Well, joining me now with more on this is Maria Trio. She is the Indigenous Project Coordinator at the Last Post Fund. Thank you for your time. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this initiative because it's relatively new, um, but it, it's a really fascinating uh, project that you that you embarked upon. How did it come about? Yeah, so it is relatively new. It started uh, March 2019, and sort of the initial spark for the project was that um, we saw on the news, so the last post Sun director, he saw that uh, a man by the name of Jan Castleno had researched the names of uh, the Indigenous veterans that had served uh, in Canada. So he had compiled a list of World War I veterans, World War II, and Korea veterans, and some modern day. And so that kind of sparked the idea of, I wonder how many of these veterans on this list might be missing a uh, grave marker. So Jan Castle, no, he generously shared the list with the last post fund. And ever since we received the list, um, we sort of organized it by community, by province, and then we went on to um, contact um, the First Nation communities that were mentioned on the list. Because it's it, it is a big list. Oh, it's huge! Yeah, it's uh, you know the official number from uh, Veterans um, Canada, mm-hmm. Veterans Affairs Canada, is that there's over. 12,000 Indigenous veterans that served. And the list more or less captures that number. So it is a list of over 12,000 names. Yeah. So when you set about starting this, what did you find? Well, we found that, um, so the first community that we worked with, um, they're in Quebec, they're called Kitigan Zibi. 
And um, that was the first community that uh, was interested in the project. And um, they helped us find a researcher. And we found that, you know, some of the names that were on the list for Kidigan Zibi, some of the veterans were indeed missing a grave marker. Uh, some already had one. And um, part of the program is also that if we've already placed a grave marker or Veterans Affairs has placed a grave marker before, we'll add um, the traditional or indigenous name of the veteran to the existing grave marker. So we found that in that community, there was um, eight, I believe around eight veterans um, that were missing other traditional indigenous name and the community wanted us to add it. So we, we went ahead and, and added that name. How do you do that work? Because obviously you have to communicate and liaise with the community to make sure that what you're doing is 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 culturally appropriate. That that um, you know, how has that worked so far? Yeah, I guess we're lucky because um, there's always like a willing researcher from the community that um, you know connects us with their families and um, does some of the research. So. For example, in Kitagan Zibi, it was great because the person that we connected with, he was a historian. So he already actually knew some of the traditional names. And um, he asked the families for us if they were interested in having the traditional name added to the tombstone, to the grave marker. Um, so we are lucky that most of the time someone from the community wants to connect with us and wants to um, is interested in, in the research and veterans. Um, so in that case, um, yeah, like it, it makes the research a lot easier and we just, we, we follow exactly what the community wants within our guidelines of what we need to add to the grave marker. Right. And, and, it, and it's expanded from there. I was reading a story, I think about, uh, the Northwest territories. I mean, it's, it's, you've been many different places now with this initiative. Yeah, it's great. I think we've almost uh worked with uh, a community in every province at this point um so um yeah so it's been great especially in northwest territories um what's been amazing is that a lot of the work that's happened there it's in very remote communities so like aklavik uh but so it's communities that we wouldn't have had access to or we wouldn't have known where there were veterans missing a grave marker so we, when we connected the researcher there, he's a veteran, a retired veteran. His name is Floyd Powder. When we connected with him, we were really lucky because he already uh, had contacts, having been a veteran himself. Um, and um, and yeah, so there's communities that, um, you know, I don't really know the numbers off the top of my head, but you look at the map and you're like, wow, they're very, very north. So, yeah, it's thanks to amazing volunteers like Floyd Powder that um, there's veterans in those communities um, that will be receiving or have already received the grave markers. Yeah. Have you found, has it changed from community to community or is it there, have there been consistencies between communities? What have you, what is sort of your impression of what you found as you've gone out to see how many veterans didn't have marked graves, for instance? Yeah, well, it's kind of, you know, some communities, there will only be like one person, you know, it might be like a list of 20 veterans, but there's only one person for whatever reason missing a grave marker. In other communities, um, it'll be like 10 people. 
So um, another community that we worked with was Kawakatu's First Nation there in Saskatchewan. And there were some veterans in that community that already had a grief marker, but there was about 10 that were missing one. And so, you know, the researcher there, she helped us get in contact with the families. And I think what happens too, and that happens not just in the Indigenous Veterans Initiative, but our Unmarked Grave Program, the general program, is that sometimes families, um, they, they, they're under the impression that, that when a veteran passes away, they will be sent a grave marker automatically, but we have no way of knowing, right? So right. it's actually we, have, we rely on the families to contact us. So if the family doesn't know, then we won't really know to send one. So I think that's what happens in some communities. They don't know about the program. So, uh, or one family knows and then the rest don't know about us. So then we kind of end up with a community where there's, you know, at least 10 veterans missing a grave marker. What's been the reaction when, from the communities, when you arrive to say, or when you, when you say, this is how it works and here's what we're going to do. Well, yeah, so mostly, I guess, a combination of COVID and just uh, how, you know, remote work is kind of uh, what we do. Mm -hmm. So the process is I I call the band office and I ask if there's anyone that sort of focuses focuses on veterans work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's a person and they'll direct me to them. Or sometimes it's someone from the band office. Um, and most of the times people are um, really um, interested in this work. Um, and they, you know, um, they're very interested in the fact that it's culturally sensitive as well. And, you know, um, not only do we add the traditional name of the veteran, but if there's a symbol that uh, is more meaningful to the community, uh, we will add that symbol to the grave marker instead of, you know, it used to be historically that automatically everyone was kind of given a cross as right. a symbol. Mm-hmm. But now we're, you know, we try to make the program as culturally sensitive as possible. And uh, we offer, uh, we've worked with a Cree artist who came up with seven designs for us. They're based on the seven sacred teaching um, symbols. And so it's like, there's like an eagle, a bear, um, uh, you know, all the seven sacred teaching symbols are there and we we either offer those or if there's another culturally sensitive symbol um we you know we go with that one so um i think overall yeah depending on the choice so i think overall the reaction is positive because we we want to work with the families um to make sure they're happy maria would you When you look at where you'd like to take it from here, are you simply going to continue to work through that list of names that you have and try to make sure you get to every last one and make sure that every single Indigenous veteran in this country has the proper grave marker? I think, yeah, definitely. That's that's definitely the ideal. Um, One thing we've worked on in the last year, it's it's sort of still in the making, but um, we're having a documentary film on the program coming up. Uh, We worked with two uh, filmmakers, um, Indigenous filmmakers from New Brunswick, and um, we hope that with the film, uh, we'll get more outreach so more families um, will know about the program. So that's definitely like a highlight that's coming up is that the film will be released um, in the summer of uh, 2023. Um, And then 
And I guess, yeah, moving the program forward, making sure those communities that have like a very high number of veterans, um, you know, some communities on the list have over 50 veterans. So making sure that in the least, um, those communities with a lot of veterans are contacted and um, to see if there's interest in the program. Um, and yeah, and 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 reaching out to families to um, through the researchers. Right. I suppose people can reach out to you too if they are, and do it the other way around if they feel that there's there's interest or they feel like there there may be they may qualify for this. Oh, definitely. And and we always tell people even if you have a doubt, you're not sure if they were a veteran, uh, we can always t- check for their service through Library and Archives Canada. So even if there's a ta- a doubt or you know the family's not sure, it's always good to check. Um, so we definitely encourage families um, to reach out to us, and and we can we can find out if they were a veteran for that person if they're in doubt. You must have learned so much just in the in the three years so far. I mean, I guess it's a little less than three years, but uh, no, three years now. But you must have learned so much doing this about the history of of, of Indigenous veterans. Definitely, um, it's it's like a project that's grown very close to my heart. So I've definitely learned a lot. Um, uh, and families have been just so generous with us in terms of sharing the story of the individual veteran too. So um, I not only get to learn sort of about the general history, um, you know, the difficult part of it, which was, of course, that a lot of Indigenous veterans, um, they didn't receive the same benefits when they came back uh, from the war as the non-Indigenous veterans. So sort of learning that that history. But I've also, the families have been so generous in sharing the actual individual stories of the veterans with me sometimes. So that's been really um, like a nice part of the project too, just learning about who the person was. Um and um, and definitely learning about all the different uh, communities across the country and the different languages as well um, through the traditional um, name that we put on the grave marker. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just, you know, I've learned little things like, for example, there's a Cree veteran that um, we worked with the family. And one thing I learned is in Cree, um, the letters are not capitalized. Mm-hmm. So it's just the little things like that that I've learned along the way that um, have made this project really interesting and and also just made me realize um, how important it is for all Canadians to know about this history. Yeah. Within the stories that you've heard, what has been the general sense of, uh, because this is obviously a way of commemorating their service and their sacrifice, um, does, does, do a lot of the families you speak to feel like this was something that was important to them? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. A lot of families are super proud of their veteran family member. Um, yeah, like the the different stories I've heard, like, um, you know, some veterans serving without uh, knowing English. So they went off to Europe and, um, you know, they had that one more aspect that was difficult, which was sometimes they didn't even know English, but, you know, they, they went ahead and uh, served anyways. So just kind of learning all those stories of veterans being brave and, and the families definitely feel proud of, of how brave um, the veterans were. So what's next? Uh, you have, I'm sure you have uh, people to talk to and, and things coming up in the near future. Where, where's the next, where is the next project taking you? Well, I'm really hoping, um, I mean, just off the top of my head, Ontario has a lot of veterans, according to the list, I think over 5,000 Indigenous veterans. And for 
whatever reason, we just haven't worked that ma- with that many communities in Ontario. So I'm I'm hoping that Ontario is as going to be one of the you know provinces that we can focus on next. Um, yeah, BC being one that for whatever reason we just had a lot of interest. So you know, BC is kind of like one province where I'm like, okay, the the research is going really well. We've worked with quite a few communities, but Ontario you know having a large number of veterans but where we're i'm thinking we need more work so i think one of the focuses will be ontario well maria uh, thank you so much for explaining exactly what this initiative is all about and keep up the good work perfect thank you so much for inviting me to speak about Well, Remembrance Day is tomorrow. Uh, Of course, it is the 11th of November, and we'll be remembering all those Canadians who fought and died in the world wars and in other conflicts. Afghanistan is always a really uh, vivid one for me. You know that some 40,000 Canadian soldiers fought in Afghanistan over 13 years, the country's largest ever overseas military operation. Um, I arrived there for the very first time in July of 2006. I remember the heat. I remember the desert of Kandahar, uh, the mountains, the smell of diesel in Kabul, uh, but mainly the heat in Kandahar. Um, and it was at the time of something called the Battle for Panjwe, which was one of the first real big fights that Canada was involved in, in southern Afghanistan, after we, uh, we took over in Kandahar province, uh, near Kandahar city. This is what it sounded like. This is combat camera footage that you can listen to that was taken back in early July of 2006, just just before I got there. In just three months, and that included Operation uh, Medusa as well, which is quite a famous um, battle in Kandahar for Canadians. We lost 16 Canadian soldiers. 50 were wounded. Over more than a decade, more than 150 Canadian soldiers were killed in Afghanistan. Thousands were injured. Uh, And as you heard there, this was war. Now, tomorrow again, we'll pause and remember their sacrifice and that of all the men and women who served, fought, and died. But as we mark November 11th, 2022, in the background, there is an issue that continues to frustrate some Afghanistan combat veterans. You see, back in 1993, Canada created its own Victoria Cross. It had been a Commonwealth British thing before that. It became our Canadian highest military honor, controlled by us. But despite that very long war fought in Afghanistan, the deaths, the injuries, the valor, the heroism, the pain, the tears, the scars that remain, no Canadian has been awarded that honor. Not one, ever. Now, 20 did receive the second highest honor, which is the Star of Military Valor. But again, to this day, we are the only country among our major allies, such as the US, the UK, Australia, even New Zealand, not to award our top military honor to a soldier who fought in Afghanistan, and it begs the question, well, why not? It's a question that retired Corporal Bruce Monker has also been asking himself for a while now, years really. Now, he was badly injured during a friendly fire incident during that same battle for Panjwe in 2006, 
that I mentioned earlier. In fact, it happened just a few months after those sounds of fighting that you heard earlier. There are serious injuries he lives with to this day, but he's also raised his voice on this and many other issues. He's a founding member of the Afghanistan Veterans Association of Canada, and now part of an organization called Valor in the Presence of the Enemy, which is leading the push to see those who fought in Afghanistan be considered for the Victoria Cross, one soldier in particular. And he joins me now from Thompson, Manitoba. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Remembrance Day, um, we, we were talking about this growing up, you know, as a kid. I don't know whether you ever think you're going to see a war. You certainly saw one. What's it like? What's, what does the 11th mean to you now? Oh, man. I can tell you, like, the 11th was almost like the Soldier St. Patrick Day when I first got in. It was uh, getting to the, the Cenotaph and doing our parade. And then I was in a Scottish regiment when in, my re- in the reserve. So I, uh, I'd, have my, I'd wear a kilt. And it was, sometimes it would be snowing out and it would be very cold. And uh, then you'd go to the local legion and you'd meet with some of these incredible, incredible World War II veterans, career war veterans, and you just sit around and they they tell you stories of you know their service, and you couldn't help but be in awe of their stories. And I, I I've always held a very soft spot in my heart for Remembrance Day, and it's it's like soul soup. It really is. It really helps me you know commemorate those that I've lost. I I served with thirteen soldiers that that died in Afghanistan. And I know another 11 that have taken their lives since. So it it really helps uh, you put things into perspective. I remember a reminder of of what you saw. I mean, you've told your story so often, but to think back about those days back in 2006, I mean, you are now one of those veterans, like those who stormed the beaches at Normandy. You became one of those Canadian soldiers. It must be, it must be surreal sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I'm also one of, I, I fought in the largest battle during the Afghanistan war, uh, Operation Medusa. And I, I fought and I was, uh, you know, I, I, it was a five hour firefight. And, you know, to be part of that is, is an incredible honor. And to have played, you know, a small part uh, is just, you know, being part of history. But also, you know, knowing that I guess I could kind of relate to those guys those those veterans that were you know in their 70s and 80s when I first met them and understand that you know eventually I'll be that little short veteran which by the way I'm five foot six so I already am very short but I will uh I'll be that guy in the you know in, you know 60 70 years and uh, it's it's a great club to be a part of you must still bear the scars both physically and emotionally from from what you uh from that day back in September 2006 and everything that happened around you I still have the scar on my head where I was shot. Um, I actually just showed my sons the other day uh, the scar on my hip where I was shot. I also have uh, some, I have scars everywhere. And then I was diagnosed with PTSD. So I've, uh, yeah, I, I still bear those scars from the uh, the mental aspect as well. To, to the question now of, of Canada's highest military honor, the Victoria Cross, describing this sort of just even your incident uh, entering Op Medusa, there were many other examples of bravery and valor uh, by Canadian soldiers during the Afghan war or during the time in Afghanistan. There's still been no no soldier from that from that conflict has been awarded the Victoria Cross, our, our highest military honor. That still rankles, doesn't it? That still is something that... Um, that sits there and, and sits there like sits there and and, uh, and and speaks to all those who fought in that war. 
it's like a there's a checklist that wars have essentially that you you kind of like to get those check marks in the boxes and not having a vc is uh is is one of those that check marks that you really think kind of legitimizes your uh your war and um uh, again there's uh, there's other aspects that we've we fall like we don't have a, a national monument to the afghan uh, war but going back to the victoria cross i mean queen victoria uh, created it in 1854 and it was because in the crimean war at the time the stories of the individual acts of bravery were selling newspapers like hotcakes so they wanted to create this medal so they had an officially documented these uh, individual acts of bravery and the leadership at the time uh, pushed back and the queen stood her ground and created the victoria cross and since then 1358 Commonwealth soldiers have been awarded the Victoria Cross. 99 are Canadian. So of the tens of millions that have fought, only uh, a small fraction have ever gotten it. And in fact, 90% of them don't even live to receive it. It was mostly posthumous because their act of bravery was, was in, in, in a way suicidal. The, the, th- the thing that we got to remember is why the Victoria Cross is so important. It's, it's uh, to put it into perspective for, for those, it's like, winning an Oscar for acting or winning a Pulitzer Prize for reporting or winning a uh, Nobel Peace Prize for curing a disease. It's just, it's just, it is, it's the pinnacle of pinnacles for a soldier. And it's because it is so highly regarded and so rare. If we find situations where it wasn't bestowed for whatever reason it may be, it, it hurts that much more. Just for listeners, uh, as a reminder, I mentioned this, but uh, Canada created its own VC, Victoria Cross, in 1993. No Canadian soldier has been awarded it since. What is the issue? Is 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 the criteria too tough? What exactly is... Because I know other nations have awarded their highest military honours for wars fought in this century, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so forth. Uh, how come not here? In fact, every other of the five eyes, uh, United States, Britain... Uh, Australia, New Zealand, and ourselves being every single one but Canada has issued their highest honor. Uh, in Afghanistan, even, the United States gave 18 Congressional Medals of Honor. The British gave out four Victoria Crosses in Afghanistan, as did the Australians. And New Zealand gave out a, a Victoria Cross as well. We took it over in 93, two years after the Australians did it. But we'd been talking about it since uh, the 80s under Mulroney. Once we did finally take it over... In the 30 years, we've never bestowed our, our country's highest honor once. I think the problem is, is, is compounded. There's many problems that, that kind of like led to where we are now. Um, the first and foremost was the generation that was responsible for giving out the Victoria Cross during the Afghan war. None of them had been in a war before that. So um, whereas you had the Australians were in Vietnam, you had uh, the British in the Falklands War. So uh, I think that that is, you know, not being able to relate or not being able to comprehend or understand, you know, a Victoria Cross worthy because you were just you never experienced it or you never saw combat would have been a problem. The other thing is you got to also understand is that perhaps just set the bar so high that they early on, they might not have given the VC because they didn't want to see like they're giving the Victoria mm-hmm. Cross out so early. And uh, uh, this is the story of, of Private Jess La Rochelle. You have one act of valor, Private Jess La Rochelle, who you feel is worthy of that highest honor. Why is that? 
Well, I mean, Jess checks all the the, the boxes. Um, so there's in, in our, I guess, opinion, the Victoria Cross comes with four criteria: uh, an incredible act of bravery, uh, uh, saving the lives of others, uh, ch- changing the course of the battle and being injured while uh, doing that act of bravery. And and frankly, Jess hits all of those swimmingly. I think that uh, a lot of the, the information kind of didn't make its way to the governor general in the way that it should have. I think a lot of the uh, citations have been uh, edited and, and amended to the point where they don't are unrecognizable on the uh, governor general's website. So I think that's one of the problems. But I, I'll I'll give you my version of Jeff, what Jess did that day, and then if your listeners want to go and look at Jess's uh, citation and see what the government's version of that day looks like, you could see that you know clearly that the all the details aren't there. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you just allow me, I will tell you the story of Jess Lorichelle on October fourteenth, two thousand six. His platoon undermanned came to Strong Point Center. Um, they were tasked with trying to prevent the Taliban from taking this uh, strategic part of the uh, Kandahar province. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they had about 15 minutes notice that the uh, an attack was coming. And Jess just was, uh, they were looking for volunteers to man the observation post. And Jess put his hand up and volunteered to man it. And within moments of him being there, a rocket-propelled grenade hit his position. It knocked him unconscious, giving him a severe concussion, blew out his right eardrum, and detached his right retina. He also suffered uh, a broken uh, vertebrae in his back and his neck. And when he came to, two of his section were killed, another four injured, and they were about to be uh, overrun by 40 Taliban. And uh, so he started manning the C6 machine gun that he had at his position, and he started firing. And uh, when he got low on ammunition, he then uh, saw a pile of M72 rocket launchers, the single-shot rocket launchers. He began to pull those apart, taking the rubber stoppers off and pulling them apart. And you also got to remember, you have to inspect these to make mm-hmm. sure that they're not bent or warped because the rocket, if it is, will not fire out properly. I don't know if he did properly inspect because obviously, you know, the adrenaline's going and, and the war's going. But if any of those had been bent, it, they would have detonated in his hand and killed him. So he takes those M72s uh, rockets and he fires 15 of them, um, each of which it must have been excruciating to fire each of those rockets uh, with a broken back and a broken neck. Not to mention that you have to expose yourself because the back blast area uh, behind you has to be clear. Otherwise, it could injure you. Uh, from the force leaving the the rocket, so imagine exposing yourself fifteen times to the enemy, and then and then once you fired your one shot, having an empty tube in your hand and being completely visible to the enemy, and he and then doing that another fourteen times after that. Um, once he single handedly repelled the uh, enemy, he then uh, manned that position for uh, the remainder of the night uh, and was relieved in the uh, morning. At which he then uh, went to the ramp ceremony for uh, the fallen, and he helped carry Private Blake Williamson's casket. And only then did he come forward and say that he was injured, and the severity of his injuries were identified. And he lives with them to this day. It's his birthday too today, isn't it? You were telling me. Yes, today, it, November tenth is, is Jess's birthday, and we we've we've 
we want to wish him a happy birthday and uh, hope that he's having uh, a, a peaceful day at home. He's spent two months uh, in the hospital during the summer and was just had a surgery and got out around uh, Thanksgiving. And the doctors say he has about a six-month uh, road to recovery in front of him. Are you hopeful that uh, that the Victoria Cross will be awarded to someone that you fought with or, or someone that you knew or someone that one of your comrades in arms from Afghanistan? And, and why does it matter if, if, if Canadians should know why it matters so much to you? What, what would you tell them? So I guess there's in, in the twofold in that um, other countries have, have started doing, not only other countries have also been, other countries have been issuing their Victoria Crosses. Other countries have been re, uh, doing reviews and uh, going back and getting it right. And we'd like to, to be part of that. We'd like, I think Canada should go back and review uh, the soldiers that w- we've identified 32 uh, that we feel should be uh, reviewed. And, uh, you know, it's not just Jess, but we want to start with Jess and then scope out there, start the precedents. And once we do, I mean, Oh, it's not just about getting the Victoria Cross. It's also about getting people to know about what Jess did. It, it pains me to say, but a lot of these guys that got the Star of Military Valor, their stories are being forgotten or becoming, you know, tall tales or myths. And uh, we want to make sure that they aren't forgotten and that, you know, these incredible acts of bravery, not just from Afghanistan veterans, but from veterans of all wars that have fought bravely on the front lines, aren't forgotten and that we want to make sure that we, uh, that everyone knows who Jess Lowershell is or Francis Pegamagabo or Tommy Prince or uh, George Burling or Ernest Poole. Like these guys are uh, the epitome of what makes this country so great. Bruce Maker, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. All the best. You know, one place I have never been, and I've been to quite a few places, and I regret to say one place I've never been, is to the Arctic, to Canada's Arctic. It's in my own country, and I've never been there. I think a lot of us have never been there. It's expensive. It's hard to get to. I'd love to go one day. Um, It's easy to forget, since most of us are crowded down here south near the U.S. border, that Canada has 162,000 kilometers of Arctic coastline, 162,000 kilometers of Arctic coastline. 40% of our landmass is made up of the territories, Yukon, the Northwest Territories of Nunavut. Canada is very much an Arctic country. And that landscape, even though most of us aren't there to see it, that landscape is changing and changing fast because of melting sea ice and rising temperatures, providing both economic opportunities, but also potential conflicts. The geopolitical terrain is shifting, particularly since Russia expanded its war in Ukraine in February and continues to develop closer ties to China. It represents a security challenge for Canada and all of NATO. It's seen that way. You'll remember in September, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg traveled with the Prime Minister to a Canadian Forces Air Base in Cold Lake, Alberta, to speak about the rapidly changing security threats in the high Arctic. Here he is. Canada's uh, presence in, uh, in uh, the uh, Canadian Arctic is important for the whole alliance. It's important for North America, but it's also important for Europe and uh, uh, all NATO allies. Because this is part about the right link uh, through the North Atlantic between Europe and North America. And it's about the fact that the shortest path uh, for uh, Russian missiles, for Russian bombers, is over the North Pole, the Polar uh, Sea. 
So therefore what happens here matters not only for Canada, it matters for the whole uh, alliance. Well, Global News senior reporter Jeff Semple went to the Arctic to get a first-hand look at a part of the region on board one of Canada's three new icebreakers, the HMCS Margaret Brook, to find out how this country could and should respond to the many changes happening above us. Here's a snippet. Margaret Brook will transit Belt Street. Commander Nicole Robichaux has served with the Royal Canadian Navy for two decades. But neither she nor any of her 65 crew members have ever seen anything like this. Margaret Brooke went and uh, poked our nose into the polar ice cap, just seeing the expanse of the Canadian Arctic. It was, it was quite fantastic. HMCS Margaret Brooke is part of a new fleet of Canadian icebreakers, tasked with patrolling Canada's Arctic, including the full length of the Northwest Passage. So we went to the northern tip of Admon Rings Island. Sailing to the edge of the map, the furthest north that any Canadian patrol ship has ever dared to venture. We know where the land is by uh, grace of uh, satellite imagery, but um, what's under the water is still very mysterious in some places. Just a little sample there of Jeff Semple's reports from the Arctic. There will be several of them running through Monday on Global National. You can watch a full half-hour special on the new reality on Saturday evening. Check your local listings. Um, but we wanted to hear more about it. So Jeff Semple, Senior Correspondent for Global News, joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome back. Hey, Ben. Great to be with you. Uh, this is a, a fascinating idea. What was the idea? What was the idea behind the trip? What did you want to find out? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we wanted to, you know, obviously, selfishly, it's, uh, I was, you know, pretty spoiled in, in getting the opportunity to go up into the Arctic at all and to see this part of the country that uh, few Canadians have, have ever seen was, uh, was too good to pass up. But also, you know, in terms of the story up there, like every year, the Canadian, um, Royal Canadian Navy takes part in, in these drills, these multinational drills with our uh, northern, northern nations, other allies, the Americans, the French, uh, the Danish. But this year, you know, there's renewed interest and I think renewed tension, frankly, because of Russia, that Arctic neighbor that has really sort of upended the world order with its invasion of Ukraine. And of course, for years, Russia has been ramping up its military presence in the Arctic, reopening old Cold War bases and building hundreds of new structures. But I think we as Canadians have almost become desensitized to that growing military footprint, Russia in the Arctic, until February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine. And, and I think, according to many of the analysts we spoke to, it sort of feels like Russia went from competitor to enemy. And the idea that Russia might ever one day, God forbid, attack North America uh, suddenly you know, went from a fantasy to unlikely, but you know, a possibility. And if Russia were to ever attack, the shortest route for a Russian missile to hit North America would be from the North Pole. So obviously, there's you know the the urgency from the Russian aggression, and also of course climate change, which is as we know reshaping that region in particular. The Arctic warming twice as fast as the global average, and so as as the ice melts, it opens up more of the Arctic to Canadians and the Canadian Navy, but also to a whole whack of other ships, from cargo ships to you know other countries, uh, which has whole other implications, um, particularly when you consider the competing claims that exist for some areas of the Arctic that are very resource rich. Yeah, I mean it's a barren area that will be heavily fought over. I mean, there's it's probably the most disputed um, piece of land where few people live on the planet to some extent. How did you get there? Did it, This is just basic stuff, but you were on the HMCS Margaret Brook, but how, how did you actually physically get there? And what was it like when you landed? It must be an unbelievable sight. 
yeah, it was incredible. I mean, the, the scenery it was just stunning, breathtaking. Sadly, the, you know, the weather up there doesn't always cooperate. The seas were pretty rough. Uh, and, you know, while we were up there, the queen died. Uh, right. So we had to cut our, we actually cut our trip a little bit short. We disembarked. We said, can you pull over? And to their credit, they, they did in Pond Inlet. And then we went and joined you in London with the rest. That's right. That's right. But the, the scenery up there is incredible. The only, and the last thing I would say, though, <laughs> Ben, is really do see the maritime traffic. When we right. got off and um, when we were in Cambridge Bay waiting to embark, Cambridge Bay is this little Inuit hamlet of 1,700 people on the western edge of the Northwest Passage, this tiny little community. And then this cruise ship rolls up and doubles the population of the town in an instant as these tourists get off. And it was just, you know, they say they've been inundated with cruise ships through the summer. It's just another example of how that landscape is changing and it is opening up to the world. Uh, and, you know, these cruise ships and that other maritime traffic need to be policed. We need to make sure our environmental laws are followed, among other things. And so that's part of the role that HMC, HMCS Margaret Book is hoping to play. So you really got a, a clear sign of just how much things are changing and how fast they're changing out up there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is we, you know, we talked to, I spoke to Mark LaRoche, who is a, was the head engineer on board HMC Margaret Brook. Uh, he has more than 30 years with the Navy, more than maybe 2,000 days at sea. Uh, and it was fascinating to get the historical perspective from him because this is the first time in his career that he has been able to go up into some of these areas of the Arctic just because the ice is, has melted and made that possible. And because we now have these new icebreakers capable of cutting through ice that's more than a meter thick. Mark LaRoche told me it was, in fact, when he was a teenager growing up in Chicoutimi, Quebec, that it was he saw a documentary about the Northwest Passage and the ill-fated Franklin Expedition. Right. That, that documentary actually inspired him to join the Navy back in the 80s. For his entire career with the military, you know, the Northwest Passage was not accessible, and now it is. And now these icebreakers are patrolling the Northwest Passage for the first time. What sense did you get from them? I mean, we talked a bit about how the mood had changed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in February. How does that manifest itself on board or does it? I think it does. I mean, a, a lot of the um, you know members of the Navy were, were reluctant to get too political with me, not for lack of trying, but of course they're you know, very wary of, you know, kind of staying within their lane, if you like, as mem members of the Navy and, and leaving the politics to the politicians. But one of them told me it was really had been a, a wake up call, the idea that or a reality check. These are sort of the common refrains that we'd heard that, you know, when they signed up for the Navy, you always imagine, you know, the world events could take a turn for the worse like they have in Ukraine. But I think it, for them, it, it has really impressed upon them the, the importance of the their service um, in the Canadian Armed Forces. They obviously just adds urgency and I think real value to the work that they're doing up there. Uh, because at this point, you know, as I noted, the Russians have been building up their military presence in the Arctic. You know, if they fired a missile, God forbid, a hypersonic missile or a cruise missile, like the ones that have featured prominently in Ukraine, if they fired one of those in North America, then very possible that we wouldn't see it coming. Uh, and that is because our North warning system up in the Arctic is, is old. It is this, a chain of 47 radar sites stretching from Alaska to Greenland that was built decades ago for the Cold War to detect old Soviet bombers. And it is no match for Russia's modern day high-tech arsenal. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the Canadian government this summer announced plans to spend $40 billion over 20 years to upgrade our Arctic defenses, including building a new surveillance system above the 70th parallel 
Uh, but that's going to take many years, of course. And in the meantime, you know, we are uh, vulnerable. So, you know, we have these new icebreakers. Uh, the Canadian government is also purchasing about 15 new warships. And so we are slowly ramping up our presence in the part of the country, the part of the world that, you know, for so long was ignored. Uh, Jeff, what was the sense, I mean, just from your reporting, was there a sense that people are focused now a lot more on the Arctic than they have been in the past? Or is that still seeping in? Uh, it's a great question. I think it probably is still seeping into a degree, but I think there's no question that, uh, you know, Arctic security has been thrust into the spotlight, obviously, as, in large part as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as you outlined. And it's interesting, you know, as part of our reporting up there, we spent some time in some of the northern communities, you know, Kaluit, in Pond Inlet, in Cambridge Bay, you know, these Inuit communities, I think, really feel it that um, and, and are, you know, interested, very interested in the fact that the Canadian government has committed to spending billions of dollars over the next 20 years to upgrade our defenses in the Canadian North. And a lot of people in those communities are hoping that that money could potentially be a win-win for Arctic security and northern development. So, you know, if you're going to improve our, our military presence up in the North, could mean things like, you know, improving the cellular infrastructure and con internet connectivity in these communities where it is sometimes non-existent. You know, if you're building a uh, runway for fighter jets or ports for Navy vessels, you know, that could potentially be repurposed for civilian, as a civilian transportation hub. And on and on we go. Um, so there's there are real hopes there. But I think also, the you know, there's the partnership there too is that, um, you know, we have the Canadian Rangers up in the north, a mainly indigenous unit of, of the military reserves. And so, you know, they are talking about constantly being underfunded. As one of them told me, it's they are the eyes and ears of the north. And so, you know, even HMCS Margaret Brooke has a new position on board. Uh, first time ever in the Navy. Uh, Emily Joss is a indigenous liaison officer. Uh, and so her job is to, as a Métis herself, to connect with um, Northern communities and to uh, build that relationship. Because, you know, a lot of the, probably the, there were no nervous moments when we were on board, but there were moments where, you know, HMCS Margaret Brooke was navigating uncharted waters, areas where they didn't know for sure what the depth was. You know, what's That's, the weather going to be like when they get there, right? I mean, it seems remarkable. Are, it seems remarkable in 2022 that that could still be true. That's right. Isn't it incredible? And, and yet it is because the ice is, is melting and uh, and revealing this new sort of incredible network of waterways that, that just didn't exist before. And so, uh, you know, they're relying a lot on that local knowledge from those northern communities to basically keep themselves safe and then in turn, you know, committing to help keep those communities safe by patrolling some of the traffic that's going through there now uncharted waters in so many ways uh, through all the reporting any one big takeaway that you i mean i guess you went up there wanting to see how the landscape was changing how the security situation uh was shifting what do you walk away understanding the extent to which you know the northwest passage in particular you know which we claim is is canadian territory but other countries dispute that and including the united states it is it is opening up and the the maritime traffic is coming through uh, and it's happening whether we're ready for it or not. And it is, you know, a, a, a lucrative passageway connecting Atlantic to Pacific. We have, you know, as you noted, three icebreakers uh, of what will eventually be six icebreakers to patrol an area that spans 40 percent of, of Canada's territory. We are under understaffed. It's precious territory. Um, 
And I think, you know, we are playing catch up. There's no question about it, but it, yeah, it's incredible to which the, 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 the game is changing. And how fast and, and how fast, because I, I think a lot of us think of climate change in the North and think it's, it's a slow moving process, but the way you describe it, it sounds like it's happening in hyperspeed almost. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have to say that that's it. It's, it's, it is, it is an example of where you can see the effects of climate change up close. And you talk to, you know, Inuit fishermen who, who see it, who are seeing it up close, right. Talking about the ice melting sooner, the weather becoming more unpredictable, the water becoming more unpredictable. Uh, you know, the U.S. Geological Survey estimates that the Arctic contains something like a third of the undiscovered, of the world's undiscovered natural gas, something like, I think, 10% of undiscovered oil. So there are, you know, there are important lucrative shipping lanes. There is a treasure trove of natural resources up there. Uh, and a lot of that is our territory. And so I think it's, uh, yeah, it was incredible to to see just breathtaking the scenery and also uh, and really sort of came home with a sense of, of appreciating the urgency that we need to have to to keep up with it. Jeff Semple, uh, thank you as always. Uh, look forward to seeing all the stories that come out of this. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Our next guest has a lot to say. I had a lot to ask, actually. Um, financier, TV star that so many of us have watched over the years as others pitch their business ideas to her. Well, now she has a new venture of her own. Arlene Dickinson is merging her marketing and communications firm, VenturePlay, with five other agencies to use that scale to establish international reach. It's a pretty interesting time to be doing it. It's called Believe Co. Partners. It will be headquartered in Calgary, have some 300 employees and seven offices across the continent. And it's going to focus on a lot of sectors, sectors that you may be familiar with uh, for Dickinson, which are like food and health, but also tech, government, financial services, and so on. So we thought we'd chat with one of Canada's best-known business people about why this and why now, but some other stuff too, challenges in the current economy if you're an entrepreneur, if you're looking to innovate, if you're looking to start out, uh, as well as building your business these days when the landscape seems to have changed so much and lots more. So joining me now from Los Angeles is Arlene Dickinson, co-managing partner and executive chair of the board of Believe Co. Partners, a venture capitalist, entrepreneur, of course, Dragon's Den star, you know and author of the bestsellers Persuasion and All In. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but for listeners who may not be familiar with what this new venture is, what would be the pitch? What is, what is the, uh, what, what's going on? The pitch is uh, being able to take the value that independent agencies offer their clients and scale it without losing that special relationship um, focused environment that is created with an independent shop. So what we wanted to do was make sure that we could scale to compete in, you know, with large pieces of business and to complete compete internationally, but without losing what makes independent shops, you know, special and unique. And so that's that's the pitch. We we are doing it differently. We're making sure that we're keeping, you know, the partners at the helm of the of the agencies that are going to be part of the legal partners. And we're working really hard to hold on to the entrepreneurial spirit and the independent thinking that comes from what smaller shops can offer. But now we're doing it at scale. I know this has been such a huge part of your career. Um, th this, this, What was it like to sort of um, make the decision to, I wouldn't say share it, but in some ways you're sharing it. Well, with Belico Partners, the decision was really about, it was twofold. First, we had to say, you know, you know, had to be a decision to say, if you're going to sell your agency into the future, if you want to leave a legacy with what you've built, and you want to be able to compete into the future, then you have to think about 
you know, who are you going to sell to and how is that transaction going to happen so that you're left with something that celebrates the legacy, but thinks about the future. Right. And for, for us, it was, okay, if we're going to sell our shops, then how do we take some of the proceeds from that sale and roll it into a new entity that actually then takes advantage of the experience, the expertise, the depth and breadth of each of these individual shops who will join Belico Partners and scale it. And and so it was it was actually easy to share because so many independent shops are struggling with exactly this, which is what does the future look like? How do you compete um, in a more effective and efficient way, but also how do you not lose sight of what brought you to the table in the first place and that that's the uh, that's always been the magical question you know for anybody who is an entrepreneur uh, how do you how do you go to the next level how do you change and evolve yeah how, how do you maintain the magic of what you have and then build on it as well by by growing it with other people who do the same thing in other markets right it's a really interesting way of approaching it. You talked about recessionary times being not a bad time to do this uh, because companies are looking for more of the kind of help that you and, and the other partners can deliver Exactly. You know, listen, there's a lot of empirical data out there that tells us that the organizations who market during a recession not only do better through the recession, but do much better right after the recession. And that's because even though the market is shifting and might be contracting, there still is a market there. And so the tendency, the the things that most businesses will do is say, you know, where we need to cut back is in our communications and marketing efforts. And that is actually the last place they should be cutting back. So it is a little bit counterintuitive because you think the market's shifting. So therefore you should not be as present, but that is when you actually should step it up. And so, you know, we see recessionary periods as the time for the uh, organizations who truly embrace marketing communications and who want to get into the market and be seen in the market at a time when others are you know coming out that as an opportunity we see those businesses as definitely aligned with the kinds of work and businesses we want to be associated with you know i, I have so many things to ask you about but that reminds me today that i was reading um that twitter's got rid of their communications department which struck me as a ter- terrible idea <laughs> what, what do you make of i mean i really wanted to because you know what is going on? Because from an outsider who doesn't have a ton of business experience, it just looks like chaos. What do you see? Chaos. Yeah. <laughs> this is chaos. That's what I see. It's actually frightening to me, um, Ben. And it's frightening as a you know marketing and communications specialist, as somebody who cares deeply about how messages are heard and consumed by various stakeholders in the marketplace. It's scary to think about the really what I would say is a a large playground being formed for racism and hatred. And so what we have to do is think about the, what we want as a society to have, you know, and what free speech actually means when it comes to private companies and how this is going to be impacting people like you, journalists who are true journalists versus people who are spreading non-factual information and looking to um, create chaos and and distrust and dishonesty. So I'm quite concerned. And and those are all probably fairly brave words for me to say here in this platform, but I I am very concerned about it. I think everyone feels the same way. Yeah, it it is sort of territory that is sometimes uh, hard to walk on, but I feel like we all should be looking at and thinking, or just trying to understand what's happening. Um, Mm -hmm. You've spent a lot of time with, with, with CEOs and egos and so on. Is Do we put too much faith, and this is not just about Twitter, but in general terms, do we put too much faith in this whole notion of the, the all-powerful CEO who can fix everything and do anything? For sure. I mean, CEOs, uh, as a result of the pandemic, 
and as a result of you know the whole shift in work habits and and what's going on in our environment in general we're seeing um, a different type of ceo having to emerge one who is more empathetic one who is more compassionate one who is less um, stuck in the old ways of doing things but you know still able to drive the business forward at the same time being accommodating of the varying needs of their employees and their teams and this is this is a different type of leadership you know this is because we none of, none of us have done this before none of us had to navigate a you know a pandemic before none of us had to navigate the impact on what has happened with people's mental health and physical health and you know their home lives and you know in particular with women so we are all as i think as leaders emerging as a different type of leader um, if we want to be successful in our leadership. So yes, I, I think it's a different world. And if you're not changing, um, you're probably not going to be able to attract the type of worker that's out there right now that's looking for uh, an organization that has social cause at its base, that understands community, that understands giving back at the same time that it it allows its employees to be flexible and, and participate in, in work in a way that not just suits the business, but also suits their life. Yeah, I can imagine it could be tough sometimes for those who think, well, this was my idea. I built this. Um, you know, this is going to be my way. And, and I don't want to hear about new ways or different ways or, you know, you see a lot of that. Ben, it's so true. Um, and, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. Listen, it, it is hard. You know, we were trained as leaders to believe that that is what you had to have the answers. You had to steer the ship. You had to be in control. Um it is very easy to get stuck in that this isn't the way we do things. This is the way we've always done it this way. That, therefore, we have to do it that way into the future. And unfortunately, that's just not going to work. I mean, having said that, we have to respect what we've learned from the past and we have to take some of those lessons forward with us. So it's a fine line. It's tough. It's tough to be a leader right now, but it's also tough to be anywhere in the workforce right now. Like, let's face it, we're all struggling with a varying uh, a level of, of uncertainty and a level of newness to what's happening, which is and just to bring it back to belief code partners, we, we really wanted to create an organization that had, you know, what doing what's right for the team at its heart. And, you know, it's easy to say that, but, you know, when you think about diversity and equality and inclusion, if you think about ESG, if you think about all of those things that are really important in society, you can't just talk about them. You have to implement processes and policies that support those things. And that's what we are going to try and strive our best to do. Thinking about all the people you've supported over the years uh, through Dragon's Day, but also just as a, as a venture capitalist, this must be tough times for some of the people that you have a lot of faith in just because the environment has shifted so much. Yes, it's a very difficult time for entrepreneurs and especially for early stage companies that are trying to, you know, just get their feet under them and get some wind at their, you know, at their backs. And what's happened is they're now facing headwinds instead and, and their, you know, capital is drying up. It's harder to get the type of exposure and, and distribution and support that you need in market. But if anything, you know, what we have to do in Canada in particular is figure out a way to support our entrepreneurs so that they can grow their businesses into the future. And that means supporting them financially from a policy perspective with the government, from a leadership perspective in terms of recognizing and, and ensuring that they're getting what they need in terms of having roadblocks taken out of their way for growth. So there's a lot to unpack there. But you know, again, back to Belief Co Partners, what we yeah. what we really believe in is helping entrepreneurial businesses, not just the big businesses. Of course, we want to work with large and all size organizations, but you know, at our heart, we're entrepreneurs. And so we understand better than anybody 
as independent shops coming together, what it's like to run a business and how tough that is. And so I think that viewpoint is really going to help us be able to help other organizations navigate the tough times ahead. Yeah, because when you look at, um, I mean, you've always been a big champion of innovation in this country. And uh, I think just by watching other interviews, sometimes you feel like you're a bit of a voice in the wilderness at times, uh, trying to say, listen, there's a lot of good ideas here. We just have to back them. How are we doing? Um, I'd give us a probably a, 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 a C plus if I'm going to be, you know, frank about it. There's growth equity that's coming into play. There are more and more funds that are doing, you know, growth financing and growth equity and um, deals in the private equity side. You know, um, listen, CBGF invested in Belief Co Partners, which they're growth equity partners. They're fantastic partners. How fortunate are we to have that kind of support? When we think about where I give worse grades, it's to these early stage companies where my fund, District Ventures Capital, invests in these very early stage companies. And those companies really struggle. They struggle to get bank debt. They struggle to get equity financing. They struggle with a lot of effort. So we need more funds in Canada. We need more of a financial ecosystem to support growth across all levels of investment, whether that's angel investing, whether that's family and friend investing, whether that's venture capital investing, private equity investing, along the spectrum, we have to make sure that we are making capital more accessible. And um, this is, there, there's a whole, I mean, that's, that's a whole other half hour show, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting, though, because I, you, you mentioned it before, sometimes there's sort of a culture of quashing new ideas in the in this country that, that could be a bit unfortunate. I can imagine from where you sit, you see all these good ideas, you witness so many good ideas, some bad ones too, over the years, um, that it must be, I wouldn't say disappointing, but uh, maybe frustrating to see that that a lot of these a lot of really good ideas go by the wayside because there just isn't that kind of spirit here sometimes to embrace new things. I often say that if you walked past, you know, um, a significant entrepreneur, you know, whether it's there's tons I could name um, who have built, you know, hugely successful companies. Um, Tom Jenkins, as an example, open text. I could walk past Tom Jenkins in the crowd and nobody would know who he was. Yep. Where if you go into, you know, probably the U.S. as an example, anybody who's built large organizations is is usually elevated in some way to be recognizable to be because they've been kind of escalated in their in their passion and drive and vision. And when you do that, when you allow people to have big dreams and you actually say, hey, this is great. You have that big dream. We're behind you. We support you. We know who you are. We acknowledge you. When you do that, you end up with this this um, this elevation of risk. What we do in Canada is we actually tamp, tamp risk down. We, um, we, we don't want people to stand up and put their hand up and actually bravely say things because who do they think they are? And we're Canadian and we don't want to be too, you know, like heaven forbid, we, you know, we go out there and be too aggressive. Um, it's changing a bit, Ben, but ultimately we still continue to be a little bit too timid, a little bit too risk adverse because we've got a social network and, and infrastructure in Canada that allows us to live a, a really great life without having to take a lot of risk. And, and so we need to, we need to start elevating those risk takers, not to give them, you know, um, accolades, but to acknowledge the risk and support their efforts to continue to build, whether it's, you know, I mean, Nortel is a good example of where we didn't do that. You know, it's probably one of the best examples, it is as old as it is. So Believe Co-Partners, why do we care about that? Well, we care about that because 
we are taking risk. We are continuing to be entrepreneurial. And we would love the market to recognize that and support us in that effort. And so when that happens, when you get that full circle of support, as well as the people willing to take the risk, that's when you build the unicorns. That's when you build great success. But it requires every aspect of support along the way in order for that to happen. Arlene Dickinson, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. 